0: You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. My all-time favorite political campaign ads are probably the ads that New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson ran during the Democratic presidential primaries in 2007 or 2008. They don't look very good, especially by today's standards, and they were obviously put together really quickly, but the concept was just great. The idea was to show what it would be like if people had to apply to be president of the United States the same way they have to apply for other management jobs. The first ad in the series showed a bunch of people sitting around a table with a big pile of resumes talking about whose qualifications made sense and whose didn't. The second ad in the series was ostensibly a little moment from Governor Richardson's first interview for the job. Okay, 14 years in Congress, U.N. Ambassador, Secretary of Energy, Governor of New Mexico, negotiated with dictators
1: in Iraq, North Korea, Cuba, Zaire, Nigeria, Yugoslavia, Kenya, got a ceasefire in Darfur,
0: nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize four times. So. What makes you think he can be president? The ads were quick. They were funny. And they came after pundits and armchair pundits had been talking about President Bush's likability for eight years. The whole, he seems like the kind of guy I could get a beer with thing. And the thing that always stuck out to me about those ads, and the reason I still think about them now, is that they really drove home the fact that voting is a hiring decision we the people are getting together and deciding, via committee, who we want to hire to do a particular job. This week, we're going to have a conversation I've been dying to have on this podcast for years. We're going to talk about what it's like to hire someone, what the most important things to think about are, and what we can get distracted by if we're not careful. Our guest for this discussion is Sandra George, Sandra is an executive leader who's been providing talent acquisitions, staffing plans and HR guidance to IT companies in the government contracting space for 15 years. That's all a fancy way of saying she's a professional person who's good at figuring out how to make a good hire. I've had a lot of questions about what to prioritize when I'm voting. This conversation was a chance for me to ask those questions to someone with a lot of experience and expertise at matching the right person to the right job for a number of very different organizations. You're gonna hear us use a few phrases over and over again throughout the interview. On one hand, we're gonna talk about soft skills, cultural fit, or mission fit. These are all slightly different ways of talking about whether a candidate's vision, goals, and personality mesh well with the vision, goals, and personality of the people they'll be working with. On the other hand, we're also going to talk about hard skills, technical skills, or technical fit. This is how skilled a candidate would be at doing the day-to-day tasks that would be part of the job we're hiring for. We're going to jump right into my conversation with Sandra as I ask her whether she looks at cultural fit or technical fit first.
1: For me, when I'm with a team, to me, it's all together. For example, my first interaction with a candidate may often be, you've applied for the role, the algorithm on the applicant tracking system has presented the top 10 candidates. All right, their resumes or profiles are sent to the hiring manager. He or she makes a decision. I will call that candidate. So right from the beginning, and when I reach out to you as a candidate, your report is assessed right there. So to me, they're going in tandem.
0: And I noticed you said that before you even reach out, you're looking at the resume and the hiring manager is looking at the resume. Resumes are mostly about the hard skills, right? Traditionally,
1: the resume, yes. What you're going to glean are primarily hard skills. Now, intuitively, based on certain activities and certain organizations, you can get more but yes, that that's pretty much the hard skill. On the paper, the role of the resume is to demonstrate you have those appropriate qualifications to get the interview.
0: Has there been a time when someone got the interview, but while you were interviewing them, it became clear that they had the skills, but they might not be the right fit for the team. Someone who can do the job, but isn't the right cultural fit or the right mission fit. But then they got hired anyway.
1: I'm smiling because there was a time I had to fill a very difficult technical role. And there were very limited candidates available, uh, several in the country. They didn't align with what the hiring team wanted culture-wise, but technically it did. So after several weeks of not finding someone that met their criteria, they ultimately decided to interview the person that I was encouraging them to interview. Because again, based on my experience with candidates and hiring managers, this would be a good person to chat with. So they ended up interviewing someone who did not think was a cultural fit, and he stayed several years and won numerous awards for the organization.
0: The inverse question I'm going to ask, is there a time when you hired someone and they fit in great and they got along really well, but it turns out they were bad at the job and everyone liked working with them, but they couldn't work well. What happens to the work that's being done when there's someone who everyone likes and isn't a drag on morale, but really can't keep up?
1: When I have worked at places where I have seen that, there was a technician who people liked them and they would have to go behind. They have to do your work, basically. Somebody has to cover for you. Somebody has to make excuses for you sometimes because the product is not delivered on time or somebody else has to clean it up. It requires more testing if the code is not right, okay? And the QA process is longer because that person did not have the skills. But for some reason, they were brought into the organization and they went to their happy hours and they had fun and went to lunch with a lot of people, but they drug the team down because other people are picking up their slack repetitively. And and that's a problem.
0: Is it easier for a company or for a team... To recover from a bad hire who was a bad hire because they didn't have the skills? Or is it easier to recover from someone who has all the skills and does the work, but was just like a square peg in a round hole on your team?
1: I don't usually encounter that. I honestly
0: have been very fortunate. And thank you, Laura. That Yeah. Maybe I we should know. be interviewing someone who's worse at their job. Than
1: <laughs> and I'm not trying to say that I'm, I'm perfect. I'm reaching... What comes to mind, if you have a, so I'm boiling it down to coachable. If you have an individual who, let's say is on what we call a performance improvement plan. Okay. So yes, you came through the interview process. We thought she could do the job. However, these are some areas that you've been on board. It's 90 days and you're still not quite up to par. Then there's, we will work with you. And because the company likes you and you're a culture fit and we'll get you, we'll work with you over the 90 days or two months to see how far we can get. Yes. I think in that scenario, if a person is a cultural fit and they're willing to be coached, they can get closer to that hundred percent. If you're up there at at 90%, most of my experience, yes, we can work with it. We can't work with somebody who's continually at 75% in most cases. Whereas let's say, for example, most of today's workforces, whether you're remote or non-remote, you have to collaborate. So if there's a, an employee who does not like to work with teams, they say they like to work with teams. But again, during the interview process, by, when they talk about what their success has been, is it how they answer the question? You can do a deeper line of questioning to determine what was their role? How did they feel? What did the team feel about them? But let's say they're with the organization and you're like, wow, they're just, they want to be the lone wolf all the time. They want to have their name at the end of the document as the signature block all the time when it's a team. That individual is more challenging to work with on a long term basis.
0: And you mentioned performance improvement. Two questions off of that. One, very practical, I always assumed that those were. Things large companies used as legal cover before they fired someone they wanted to fire. How often are those actually, do those have a happy ending as far as the staffer is concerned?
1: They can. It depends, again. A lot of this is depends because we're all humans and we bring ourselves wherever we go. So I've worked in organizations where I've seen employees on a performance improvement plan, and they have a manager, they have a lead that sits down with them and specifically says the areas that they're deficient. And what the expectation is, and a reasonable time path for them to get to the expectation. And that's successful. And then they or then the employees like, oh, okay, so there's a sigh of relief. All right. Then they're continuing to stay with the organization another couple of years. Okay. They may not be that quote rock star, but they're doing their job and they're open to new challenges and they've learned from that. Now there's some Places, some organizations I've worked in, and they don't do performance improvement plans. There will just be a call. It's, can you go ahead and call Harry? Today's his last day. My question is, why am I just hearing about that? And I'll have a dialogue with the hiring team. Sometimes I have a dialogue with the hiring team, and sometimes I'm told, this is the direction, this is what I want to have happen. And then I have to make the call along with the person's manager. Usually I try to. Say, I need somebody who's in leadership. I need the manager on the line with me, in the meeting with me, so that I can answer these questions, you can answer the questions that the employee may have.
0: Leadership, I guess, is the next question that I have on this. How effective are things like performance improvement plans when the new hire who is not really operating up to snuff is in a more senior position? Interesting question. Yes. Like I don't know if I've ever heard of a CEO being put on a PIP. Correct. Or a CFO.
1: Correct. I have not encountered that as well. Somebody at a senior <laughs> level given it. I imagine there would be an informal discussion that they may have had with someone higher up in the um, leadership and then action was taken.
0: Is that might be maybe an argument for hiring from within or hiring people who already have a track record for senior positions rather than hiring someone in a senior position who's making a hard career shift? What do you mean by hard career shift? Let's say there's the cliche of, oh, I'm going to think about becoming a teacher once I'm done being an iBanker or whatever. And if that's the case, if someone's making that career shift, you might hire them to be a teacher or a teacher's assistant, but they're probably not going to jump right to being a principal. Correct. Or like school district manager.
1: (laughs) Exactly. There's going to be a a lot, there should be a line of progression because you demonstrated competency in one career field, yes, most cases are going to take time to matriculate and demonstrate that proficiency in another, regardless of what your passion
0: is. Yes. So when you are interviewing someone or seeing them through the process, if there's something in them, if they have an exceptional quality, they're exceptionally good at what they're doing, or they have the soft skills necessary for a client facing position in spades, charming people. How do you keep yourself from getting so carried away seeing the possibilities from what they're good at that you stop seeing potential rough spots or potential red flags? How do you keep your hopes and expectations in check and pace yourself when you see something special and you're like, I want to run with this?
1: Great question. Yeah. What happens is it will happen sometimes. It's not a... It's not that something happens every week, but when that happens, you're like, oh my gosh, that candidate is just a rock star, knocked it totally out the park. So from my perspective, I am usually part of a team. And that's the beauty that I keep coming back to that because it's so important. It's not just me making the decision. It's going to be the hiring manager. It's going to be a lead. And depending on who that candidate, who that employee will interface with, It would be somebody from two or three other departments. You may have anywhere from three to nine people, sometimes more, but I don't. The organizations I had, generally it's going to stop at five people that are going to do the weigh in. And that's important because it works best when we can do a comparison. You talk to them. I talk to them. Lauren talks to them so then at the end, there is an, op- in some organization, it's worked really well where they chose to have a debrief right at the end. We don't wait two days. That same day or the very first thing in the morning, the hiring team gets together and somebody from human resources will say, all right, you interviewed Robin, let's talk about that. And then everybody can say, she did great. but However, this is what I noticed. And then that way, if I was just really enthused, super enthusiastic, I can hear that. I cannot just look at it in the applicant tracking system. I get to hear the dialogue that you may have had about that Robin. And that's not going to come through necessarily in the applicant tracking system. They may not put that in there, but we can all talk it through. And then as a team, we can decide how important is that? Is it something that's going to be affected on the quality of the work? Is it going to affect the team? Is it going to affect the client's perception of the work we do? And then we can make a, a decision. So it's, we're checking ourselves throughout the process.
0: And you're not just checking yourself, you're actually having other people keep you in check. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, it's a team. It's not one or two people that make these decisions. It should not be. That's been my experience for it to be successful.
0: That's uh, maybe the benefit of voluntarily operating by committee is when other people, other members of the committee are challenging you or pushing back on something or just asking questions that you wouldn't ask of yourself. You're almost deputizing them to do that for you it's not an attack. It's collaboration.
1: Exactly. And that's the culture. If, you know, you, a successful team is is going to feel that way. It's not an attack. It's a discussion.
0: So when I was in high school, my school wanted to hire a new German teacher and I was taking German and I was the like student representative on the committee interviewing the like last two or three candidates. And I had no idea what I was doing. i Didn't even really understand why I was there. Definitely didn't know how to contribute anything useful to it, because I had no idea really what it meant to review or hire a candidate. The only job I had had was teaching karate, and I had basically interviewed for that over the course of four years by taking karate myself and being good at it. So if I were to have an opportunity to get in a TARDIS and go back in time and... Give myself some advice on being a better member of that hiring committee. What advice would you give to someone who's being asked to help evaluate job applicants for the first time ever in their life? What are some common first-timer mistakes or things people don't think about?
1: So what I would do with this uh,
0: top student, Rick, I just need you. I was middle of the pack for German class, actually. Like, I was was solid Bs. Hey. Yeah, he's in German, that's good.
1: So, what they're relying on you, obviously, you uh, certainly know the language, there's some level of enthusiasm for it or perceived enthusiasm for it. But I would expect you to be able to provide feedback on what a typical 15 year old would experience in the classroom, what you would like to experience. So, I want you to evaluate on how that person answers your questions, how they deliver the material. Is it engaging? Are they able to go beyond the textbook to help make it more real to you? Can they draw on some life experiences? Can they draw on some other material that's out there that talks about German in the real world? That's important. As we know, when we go to school, we don't just want to see something on the board or something on the screen. We want to talk to people who have been there, some level of culture immersion. immersion. Those are important. But most important in, in high school, yeah, the engagement, how well they engage you. Is it going to be boring or are you going to make it fun? I had a teacher in, who taught social studies in middle school and it was like, we just couldn't wait to get there. It was fun when we went to this class.
0: I'm sure every millennial has heard this advice from our parents or grandparents. They will send us a job ad and know that's, I have a bachelor's degree. They're looking for a master's degree and 10 years experience or I, I'm entry level at this. I'm looking for assistant jobs. This is a like, vice president of communications job. This is not the right scope for me yet. And then you know, our, we hear, oh, just apply anyway. What's the worst that could happen? I know what I think probably happens. My guess is because these systems are all automated, or at least to some degree automated, you're never even going to see that resume.
1: You're correct. Typically, the way it's set up with companies, the system, the applicant tracking system will not put that resume in front of you. When I post a job, I may have 200 responses in four hours. So Rick, how do you think I'm going to read all of those resumes? That's way too many. And I may have 30 jobs. How am I going to read? How am I going to get my work done? That's the reality. That's what I deal with. That's what my colleagues deal with. That's one of the reasons um, you need an applicant track. There's a whole multitude of reasons. You need it for compliance reporting, affirmative action reporting, Mm -hmm. government action reporting. It's a whole multitude of reasons. But yes. Because for example, I may say, oh my gosh, I always wanted to work at Rick's company. I'm not qualified, but oh, what the heck? I like their, I like their culture. I like their mission. Let me go and apply. So out of 200 resumes, let's see, maybe 25 might be qualified. You wouldn't want to spend your time looking at the rest of us, 175 people. That's only one of your jobs. Plus you have other stuff you have to do. That's just the recruiting part. You still have to do HR. You still have to onboard. You may still have to do other stuff depending on the organization. And oftentimes, it's not just up to the recruiter. Again, when the candidate meets the 75 or 85%, it's up to the hiring manager. They get the opportunity to look at the resume and say, Sandra, you sent me 10 resumes. I want to see these five. I'm going to see these two. So it's not just me. It's them.
0: So you said that the applicant tracking system is usually the first line of defense to make sure this scenario doesn't even happen? Oftentimes, correct. Yes. On the off chance that your first round of screening is done by like a college intern or something and they let one slip through, how do you handle situations where this is probably a promising person, but they're not ready for this job?
1: Sometimes, yes, we do get HR, talent acquisition. I do get a resume and the Individual was a great student, Eagle Scout. Goodness knows they volunteered in tutoring. They did so much community outreach, just a real well rounded person on paper. And I even gave, let's say, I'll give them a call just and see what they're looking for, et cetera. But I know that they're not a fit. They don't, unfortunately, they don't have the qualifications for the role. So what I will do is I will thank them for sending in their resume, and in this particular case, somebody handed it to me literally in an email. They did not go through the whole normal process, all right, or else I might not even be talking to them, but I will give a courtesy call. Sometimes I'm asked to give a courtesy call. Hey, I know Harry's not a fit, but just give him a call and just let him know we got his resume, and we'll keep him on file if the requirement changes, which is true. If the requirements are downgraded and you don't need five years, you only need two because that's all Harry has, and he meets the other requirements, such as the education, such as the technical tools or software, then I can call him back. So I will politely thank them for their interest in the company, find out what they'd like to be doing, and just share with them, your resume looks good. However, based on the qualifications for our position, this is what we need. Would it be okay to reach back to you at a future point if we have a role that requires less experience?
0: It strikes me that it would almost not be, kind to harry to put him into the position he's not ready for correct before we close out we've mentioned a few times the ideas of cultural fit and soft skills that are necessary for a particular job but regardless of company culture are there any particular character traits that become red flags for you in a hire or green flags for you in a hire regardless of who the client organization is Traits that make someone universally a good team member or universally a liability for team performance.
1: When you're interviewing candidates, you want to make sure that the person is not just articulate, not just the education requirements, but are they compassionate? Are they empathetic? And there's multiple ways to determine that.
0: All right, that was my interview with Sandra George on what goes into making a hiring decision. There are three points from that conversation I want to pull out and think about a little more. First, let's talk about hard skills or technical fit and soft skills or cultural fit. Can someone do the job and do we like them? Sandra said that by the time she talks with a candidate, all the people who don't have the hard skills, who aren't a technical fit for the job, Are already screened out. By the time she's reviewing a candidate, the automated system she set up has already eliminated people who definitely can't do the job. But she also said that she still looks at cultural fit and at technical fit. When we vote, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on whether someone's the right cultural fit, whether the person we're hiring seems to fit in well with us. I'm talking about. Party affiliation. I'm talking about generation. I'm talking about how the things they say make us feel. Do we like hearing this person speak? Is this person saying the kinds of things I'd want to say if I had a microphone? We tend to assume that any candidates who make it to a general election must all basically be the same when it comes to technical fit, that they'd all basically be just as good at the job as one another. We assume that the technical screening has already happened. That the biggest differences, maybe the only differences we care about, are closer to being what a hiring manager like Sandra would call mission fit or cultural fit. But that's not the case. If we're hiring people into elected office, we have to remember that there is no first-round interview. There's no screening system that screens for competency. There are political parties, and those parties have primaries— But primaries aren't designed to screen for competency. They're designed to screen for culture. They're designed to figure out who can make the party's most active and enthusiastic members most excited. Some people listening to this are in cities where there are open primaries, and those function a little differently. But for the most part, primaries are designed to figure out who can make the party diehards most excited. The Constitution gives the citizens it gives the voters it gives we the people the body politic it gives us the responsibility of selecting capable people to serve in office during general elections even though Sandra doesn't handle the first round screenings even though she has the benefit of screening out anyone who would probably do a bad job before they would ever even get to talk with her she still makes technical skill one of the biggest things she looks for. For those of us who are voting on city council, who are hiring uh, city council members or county executives or congressional members, we have to remember to filter for those technical skills too. We have to be willing to hire someone we may not like or who may have different goals from us, but who actually knows how to keep the organization running well instead of someone we like who just isn't up to the job. An analogy I use a lot is driving. If one person knows how to drive stick, and someone else doesn't, I'd rather let the person who knows how to drive stick drive the car, even if they say that they're going to drive somewhere I don't want to go. If a good driver is driving, then when we get there, someone else is going to be able to get behind the wheel and drive the car somewhere better. But if someone who doesn't know how to drive stick gets behind the wheel, even if they want to go to the same place I want to go, they're going to strip the gears and flood the engine. We probably won't end up actually getting there. And even if we do get there, the car will be all broken down and busted, and we're not ever going to be able to do anything else with it. So that's point one that I think we need to remember. When we vote, we should put at least as much emphasis on technical skills as we do on cultural fit. The next thing that I just want to pause and highlight is the exchange near the end, where she mentioned that for more senior positions, she generally sees people being hired from within a company, or at least from within an industry. The higher level the position, the less likely it is that she's going to hire someone who's making a career shift. And I'll be honest, this one's just a pet peeve, but... I've always been frustrated by people who say that government should be run like a business. The people saying that are usually people who've already had pretty successful careers in business, who wanna jump into government at the state level as a governor or at the federal level. But government isn't a business, it's government. A few years ago on our blog, someone who had recently left working on Capitol Hill wrote an article for us with just my favorite title. It was called, Run Congress Like a Congress. Legislating and governing are very specific skills. It's possible that someone who's really good at lifting weights, or really good at selling coffee, or really good at being the rock, might also be really good at governing. But it's a crapshoot, and I'm not sure we should be comfortable being cavalier with that kind of responsibility. Sandra was saying that for higher-level positions, she wants to make sure that the person she hires actually has a track record in the field, in the industry she's hiring for. If we don't usually look for that when we vote, it's worth asking ourselves, how would we feel if we found out that we were suddenly getting a new boss who had never worked in our industry before? And lastly, maybe most importantly for Christians, I want to highlight how Sandra talked about hiring by committee. Because I was really struck by how not confrontational she made the whole process sound. Even when she was enthusiastic about someone who the rest of the team didn't think would be a good cultural fit, it wasn't a matter of her wanting to win or wanting the other people to acknowledge that she was right. It was a matter of them going back and forth together, and the rest of the team eventually trusting that she had real concerns about the other candidates or real insight into this one. She talked about how her hiring committees are always giving one another feedback, listening to each other about what they like and what they're concerned about at every step of the process. And they were doing this not just so that she knows that she's being heard, but so that she knows that other people have a chance to keep her in check too, to fill in her blind spots. This is really, really hard to do when it comes to government and politics. Voting is constantly framed for us as a battle, and people who vote differently from us are framed as people we're trying to defeat. Maybe the single most important thing we can do in the church to demonstrate that our faith pushes us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square is to ask other Christians who don't share our politics— to keep us in check. The more enthusiastic we are about a candidate, the more we need a different set of eyes checking our blind spots. The more we need to let Christians on the other side of the aisle challenge us, cool us down. Other Christians, Christians who don't like the same people we do or the same parties that we do or who are part of groups we don't know much about or understand. People who share our faith but not our politics, not our demographics, and not our interests. These people are literally the only people we could ever trust to help pull us back when our politics go too far. The only people who can remind us to fix our eyes on Christ when we don't realize we're looking at something else. If we want to practice our faith, we can't just tolerate these people. We have to welcome them. And we have to let them teach us how to be better members of this hiring committee. Please pray with me. Father, you say that if anyone lacks wisdom, we should ask you for it. And you give generously, and you won't shame us for asking, and you'll give us wisdom. That's good news, because the responsibilities you've given to us in this country— require more wisdom than any one of us could possibly have. We confess that we often don't take the decisions we have to make seriously enough. We think about what we want. We think about our preferences. We probably take our goals and our preferences very seriously. But then we don't think about all of the implications of our decision to hire someone into elected office. We take our interests too seriously and the greater responsibility we're calling people to not seriously enough. And when you try to speak to us about this through our brothers and sisters, when we are asked to think about these decisions in new ways, in ways that take parts of your word very seriously that we've maybe skimmed over before, we get angry or we get defensive or we think that If these people don't already agree with us, they must not be wise. They must be mistaken or bitter or malicious. We know that loving you, trusting you, and knowing you well doesn't mean wanting the same things we want. And we admit right now that loving you means not wanting the same things we want more often than we want to admit. Most of us listening to this this week are a year away from when we'll need to vote again. So in this downtime, in this off-season, start building up wisdom in us early. Help us realize our need for wisdom that challenges us. Bring us opportunities to hear wisdom we wouldn't seek out for ourselves and make us humble enough to hear it in good faith. We don't want to make hiring decisions based on who will make us feel like we won or who will put the people who disagree with us to shame or who will make us feel good about ourselves. We want to make these hiring decisions based on who would serve best in these roles, who would govern skillfully and healthfully, not just who would govern in a way that we'd find satisfying. We praise these things in the name of Jesus, on whose shoulders all of government will one day rest. And we pray these things in his name because— He entrusts us with the honor of his name in this world now until he returns, and we want that return to be greeted joyfully by as many people as possible. Amen. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you so much to Sandra George for joining us, and thank you to Lauren Larson for producing this week's episode. We'll be back next week. Until then, if you are enjoying this podcast, you can visit our website, christiancivics.org, to support our work. While you're on our website, you can also check out a transcript of this episode as well as a transcript of the prayer at the end. We try to get those up for as many of these episodes as we can for you to be able to continue using um, in your own devotional life, in your own prayer life, or if you need to lead other people in prayer, Thank you again for listening and be sure to subscribe so that you can catch our next episode next week and go deeper into how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square.